listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. Today, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. We're joined here by a special guest, Emma Powell. Emma, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Sterling. Emma, so can you give our listeners that aren't familiar with you a little bit of your background and kind of tell them where you came from, how you got into real estate investing and what you're doing today? Yeah, I feel like I've been telling this same story over and over again. So I'll try and I'll try and make it uh, a little bit different. So I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and I don't mind if I never go back. Don't want to install like a whole city, but I can't take the I can't take the gray. So I met my husband. He grew up in Idaho. We lived in Austin, Texas for 20 years. We were tech industry people. And in uh, 2017 Thanksgiving, he was laid off from the startup where he was at. And so we just started looking for a job. And I said, I'd move to Salt Lake City, be closer to your family, closer to my family. At the time, I was working for the Austin rugby team and I was looking for a city that had a rugby industry in it. The league had, was just about to go pro. That was its first season. And I felt really excited to be involved in that, that ground up. Uh, we had invested in some tech companies before that, but it, we never had like the big payday, the big ship come in, you know, that big investment payoff. We were supposed to be selling our house as a commercial property that we had remodeled. And because we had to move a little sooner than the road was finished and all that, we ended up just having to sell it as a house. The options we had, they ended up just not going public. And so we were just really, really frustrated. So when we moved to Salt Lake, I was looking for a new job. You know, the rugby team and the league here didn't really have anything at that point. Not saying they would have hired me even if they did, right? But I mean, I knew them all. So I felt like I had a pretty good shot, but got up and here and just realized that I didn't have anything going on. And we were looking at buying a rental house with the money that we did make off selling our house. It just wasn't like a huge payday that we were expecting, but it was enough to pay cash for a rental. So we started looking around and I realized uh, my husband, we had two that we really liked, but we could only afford one of them. And so I had this crazy idea of why don't we get mortgages, right? And then we can just, we can just buy two of these rental houses. And then after that, I started attending like the, the Utah and Salt Lake Real Estate Investor Association, you know, the RIA, the local RIA clubs. And some of the paid education meetings, like if it's a free meeting, like I was there, right? right and I right. realized, oh, wait, this is how everybody's doing it. And not everybody's crazy. Like Dave Ramsey makes it sound like if you don't pay cash for <laughs> rental, you, you know, your whole world is going to implode. But he also says something else that really hit me. He says, um, if somebody's struggling in their finances, to he often says, sell your house and don't get att- emotionally attached to your house because there's a house on every corner. And I kind of felt like that by extension, I could say, okay, let's say I get a mortgage on this place. Let's say we lose it. We default and they foreclose on us and we lose all the money that we put into it. There's another house on another corner. <laughs> and, and I just felt like, why can I not get emotionally attached to my house? Because you, there's one on every corner, but yet I have to go in. It was like this fear mentality. You have to take absolutely zero risk when you're going into this investment thing because something bad might happen. And I felt like it was just a really extremist approach and kind of distanced myself from that investing philosophy and immediately jumped on commercial because if we're going to get a mortgage, let's go get a mortgage. Let's go buy something. <laughs> so we started looking for apartment complexes in my husband's hometown almost immediately. It's a where a, is that? He grew up just north of Idaho Falls, Idaho, in a little town called Rexburg, where BYU Idaho is the home of BYU Idaho. And so he went to school there. His parents teach there. That's where I met him. 
And we knew the apartment complex culture up there because growing up and living there and then when our daughter is now at that school, a lot of the locals own these apartment complexes where all these students live. And we knew people who owned them. And so it always seemed like, oh, they were the rich potato farmers or something that could afford this. But then when I started looking into actually buying a 10plex or a 12plex, I was starting to watch the listings, two and a half million dollars, $1.2 million. And I thought, well, that's actually not even that much money. People, our house is, is almost worth that much because, you know, Utah real estate kind of expensive. And so just massive mindset shift. Let's save up for a down payment and go buy one of these apartment complexes. And during the course of trying to get one, we ended up with a couple of single family houses along the way, stuff that falls in your lap. And, you know, once you're in the world networking stuff starts to happen. And so we bought a couple of those. And I started running out of money. And my husband said, I thought you were going to go commercial, just go use other people's money. And I was like, all right. So he challenged me to buy a commercial property with none of my own money. And so I took that challenge and went off and and started learning how to raise capital and find larger deals. Awesome. What was your first larger deal? First larger deal was a 50 unit complex just south of Idaho Falls in Pocatello. I knew somebody in the Utah RIA. We were talking about another house that she had for sale. And then one day on Facebook, she puts on there, I've got this 50 unit apartment in Pocatello, Idaho for sale. Does anybody want information? I was like, sure. I'll, I'll look at it. So she sent it over. I didn't know how to run numbers. I made a homemade spreadsheet with like five things. It was terrible. But once I looked at it and felt like you know, back in the napkin, this is looking pretty decent. I had been networking with other apartment investors for the previous probably six months. And I might've even gone to a conference at that point. And so I just decided I'm going to send this out to a couple of people and see what they think. I didn't have it under contract, no non-disclosure agreements, nothing, just a couple of people. Uh, They were all interested in partnering on it. And one guy was able to actually get it done, Uh, get it under contract. It was a tough negotiation and raise all the capital. Well, almost all the capital for it. And then we brought in a, what's called a key partner at KP. And that's the guy that you need the network liquidity, Frank, to sign on the loan. So he came in and he ended up raising some capital too, even though originally he wasn't going to, but because it was a public offering, we could talk about it with anybody on social media. So Frank just started talking about it and he had such a basis of trust built between him and his network that they were like, yeah, we'd like to invest in this. So it was hard to raise the money for an ugly apartment complex in Poca nowhere, Idaho for people in Utah. They think of Pocatello as kind of an armpit and for people outside of Utah, They've never heard of it. And it's kind of a strange name and it makes it sound like a small town. So that deal sticks out to to me just in the way you described. So I met Frank about a year ago and then yeah. and he told me about this Pocatello deal. And then I met Chris six months ago. He told me about a Pocatello deal. I was like, there's no way that there, there's two different Pocatello deals. So I called up Frank. I was like, hey, do you know? Do you know? And it ended up being the same one. I know. It was it was really funny one day. I was talking about it on a podcast, but I never said the name of the city. And so two things happened after that. I went out to lunch with somebody. We're building a new building in downtown Salt Lake. And so we were basically interviewing internet provider contractors. And so we went out to lunch and the sales guy brought his boss, the owner of the company, and we're sitting there and, and chit-chatting. And I didn't even know his name at this point. And he said... He said, so I looked you up before our meeting and listened to one of the podcasts that you did. And you're talking about this 
50 unit in Idaho. He said, is that in Pocatello? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, my name is such and such. I'm actually one of your investors. I was like, because I knew his name, but I, you know, he was one of my partners in my partner's network. I've never met him before. So that was funny coincidence. And we had an opportunity to to talk shop and turns out that he is big in the development world as well. And it was able to look at our project and, and introduce me to some more people from there. So that was, that was kind of funny how that came up. And then one of our last limited partners who came into that deal, um, his name is Brandon. And I mentioned to Frank and, and Christopher, Hey, I need to get the documents over to Brandon so he can send over, he can wire over his fund. And cause it, my bigger pockets had just published Frank said, wait, Brandon Turner's investing in our deal. <laughs> and I said, Brandon Turner has heard of our deal because I talked about it on the show, but no, we, we're really not that close yet. So, oh man. So that was, that was um, a funny coincidence, but yeah, this deal put my credibility on the map. And I think that that's kind of the rule of the first deal. I had other, like I said, residential properties we closed before that, that we owned as solo owners. But that first deal, whether it's residential or commercial or whatever it is that you're trying to niche into, is the most important one. And I knew we had to close this. And I knew we had to make it successful because the rest of the career is going to hinge on getting that post deal under your belt. So that was a really important one for us. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I've recently gone through the same, the same feeling. So I, I, I totally understand the importance there. I think about like all my work in residential before I got into the commercial space mm-hmm. and like the first duplexes that I like bird fixed that borrowed other people's money to fix yep. it up. And it, every time I tell that story, like you, I, I feel like I've told the story a hundred times on different yeah. podcasts. I always say like, that's the deal that made me. It gives you that credibility to other people and that proof of concept to yourself. Like, okay, I can do this. I know I can do this. Everybody else knows I can do this. And then you're just so much more fearless in in your endeavors going forward. Yeah. I had people tell me not to do that deal for various reasons. My husband, when he saw it, we, we were closing on a triplex that day. So we were already up there for that. It's just down the street. And we drove by this place and he looked at it and he said, we don't buy class D properties. <laughs> and if my realtor had not been with us, cause I met him in the Idaho Rhea and he got out of the car and he looked at it and he said, I like this place. Like let, let's do it. Right. And if he hadn't been with me, I might have been too chicken to buy it. Cause it looked really bad. But then when you're looking at the neighborhood around it, uh, the neighborhood around it was in much better shape. And so you want the ugliest frog on the log when you're looking in a, in a working class neighborhood. And I knew that if we just raised it up to the level of the, the places around it, that we could do it. And my realtor, who was originally going to partner and it ended up not working out because, you know, getting the money moved around and all that, he had a lot of, of construction and rehab experience. And so I felt very comfortable going into this with somebody who had more experience. And I think that's the key of doing something bigger or larger than you think you can do is putting your skill set in there and then finding people who are good at what you're bad at but you have to be good at something they're bad at, like finding a deal or raising capital. Like on our new build right now, we brought in two commercial contractors as the partners. And we talked to a lot of other partners. And sometimes when you're raising money, you'll just take whoever's whoever's offering money, sure. right? You just want to vet that they're not criminals or, or something. But if somebody's bringing in money, you, do, you oftentimes can't be picky. But the people who were attracted to that downtown Salt Lake project were 
contractors, commercial contractors, because uh, that doesn't scare them to do a large building. But most of the other people, are like, I don't know about new construction. I'm feeling a little bit hesitant. So who we ended up with on the team, uh, even though you know you can't always be picky with that when you're trying to raise that much money, have been awesome because they know a lot about construction and new construction and construction management. Whereas my experience is doing interior rehabs on on a yes. part totally different. I was about to say that seems like a big jump. Like I would be terrified to do a ground up development. What made you want to go take that leap from, okay, I, I rehabbed the inside of some apartments to, all right, I'm going to go build one. <laughs> well, when I had taken on that 50 unit disgusting, you know, class D that we had half the budget that was needed, we should have spent a million dollars on it, but the returns only justified less than half of that. And going into that and people told me not to do it. I just made sure we had people on the team who could do it. And to me, if the numbers and the location work, the rest of it, you can sort out. You can't fix a bad deal that you're overpaying for. You can't really fix the neighborhood. You can't move the building, but you can certainly bring a good deal to a team of experienced people who can recognize what a good deal is. Now, is everybody going to like your deal? No, it was hard to raise money for Poca Nowhere. It was hard to raise money for downtown Salt Lake and people who didn't have money would look at the project and say, you can have people lining up the door out this one of a uh, hundred units in downtown Salt Lake. Like this is an amazing project. But when it comes to people actually putting their money into the bank account, it's an arduous process, but you're trying to get people on that team who know. I knew nothing about development, but I knew those numbers work. And I knew that it worked because when I did the same thing, back a napkin, this thing is growing legs, and then brought in a financial manager who knew how to run these complex models. He does it for Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, underwrites these development deals. And he was hungry for his first deal as an investor. And so he came in and took over all of that financial modeling. So once you show the numbers are good, then going out and getting the team of people to support that project is still hard, but it's doable. And I'm able to turn over a lot of the things that I don't know anything about over to the competent team members. Awesome. So now we're going to get to the part of the show that you and I were, were messaging back and forth about. So the reality, and I've said this multiple times in the air, but like a lot of the times the guests on my show are like people I legit like look up to and want to ask some questions to. And I'm just like, oh, well, I'll just invite them on the show and then I'll ask them all the stuff I want to know and we'll just record it because I'm sure other people have the same questions. So where I am like at the point in my investing career, right where you were right after Pocatello. And it's like, I'm super high on the momentum and like, I've got all this energy and focus and I want to know where to put it. Like how much do I dump into, you know, growing the investor base, like creating lead magnets and use an active campaign to follow up with them or how much should I dump into the acquisition side? And it's, you know, what were you doing before on both the acquisition and the fundraising side? And then kind of what did you, what changed after your first successful deal where you're like, you got that proof of concept and you got that credibility and you, you, you like got that shot in the arm where you're like, all right, I really want to go turn it up now. Can you just talk a little bit about those? I'm at a fork in the road and I'm, I could use some guidance and, and you're, you know, a few steps ahead of me. So I'd love some, some advice on that. 
Well, I, I think the fork that you're recognizing is is indeed a fork. I always tell people that you get into a deal, a large commercial deal, by either controlling the deal or controlling the money. Which one do you want to control? Controlling the deal means you have to be a good networker and a good underwriter you have to source those deals. And you have to be able to evaluate the financials on that deal that you're looking at. And that means you need to break out the spreadsheet. You need to start researching the data, find out if this is a good deal or not. If you're going to control the money, you had a different kind of networking instead of with brokers, you're networking with investors, but you need to be able to track those brokers versus investors in the same way. You're going to have a, a CRM, a database, some sort of outreach, email campaigns, texting, whatever that looks like. I always encourage people to focus on what they know they actually will do instead of what they need to force themselves how to do. So I'm having to force myself to do email marketing, which means my email marketing is not very good. I prefer going to live events, networking, and then texting. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, but it's gotten to the point where I needed to track the people I was talking to because you lose track, right? And I, so I put, I did put them into an email marketing system. Have I sent an email? No, but at least they're sort of in there. So controlling the money is that same kind of network. You got to track it. You got to follow up with people. It's either your own money. If you have some cash to invest, you can become an earnest money partner. You can get in early days split some of that risk between the other partners. You put up all the EMD, but if it fails, you might say, we're all going to split it evenly to pay me back, sign some sort of an agreement to that effect, but like kind of like a note, a zero interest note. Sure. So you can get in early that way. If you want to get in after the deal is under contract and during due diligence, which you want to buy into a GP, I would say to set aside 350, maybe $500,000 to buy your way into there or to form a group or a coalition with some buddies to put together 500 to maybe a million dollars. Like we want, part, we'll bring this in, but we want part of the GP. So you can negotiate uh, if you control the money to find those good deals. Is again, if you're going to be the one sourcing them from brokers and underwriting them, you're going to be networking with brokers and direct to seller, depending on what size you're going for. But if you are going to be raising money, you still need to be able to source good deals from good operators. So you're you're networking both with your investors and with other deal operators, as many of them as you can meet. And you need to learn how to underwrite their deals. So again, we're back to the spreadsheet. Because if you're going to place your investor money into a deal, you're not just going to take any deal that comes along or just trust the numbers that they put in front of you. You need to be able to vet that out for yourself. And so both of those skills take a lot of networking, a lot of organizing that network, and being able to financially underwrite the deals with the spreadsheets and the research. So the skill set is the same on either side. You just have to decide which direction am I going to go. Now, in a low deal environment, what we have right now in the seller's market, sourcing a deal is huge. But you also have to network with people who source money because you could have the best deal in the world. But if you've never talked to anybody who can raise capital or bring capital to your deal, and you've got the thing under contract and the clock's ticking... It's dialing for dollars and it's crazy time. So set all that up before you find a deal, be networking with brokers, sellers, all that, but also with net worth partners who can sign on your loan, that KP we were talking about earlier, and also people who can raise capital. So both teams need the other team. Make sure that you're networking appropriately. So you just have to decide which you're going to go after. Or if you're going to be a swing player, in which case you probably won't be that great at either one of those things, which is more where I come into things. Sometimes I find deals, I sort of look for them. They fall in my lap through my network. I can underwrite, but I'm not the expert. I can raise capital, but it's not like you can throw a $10 million stick out there and I can bring it back like a retriever. You know, three weeks later, I got $10 million. 
I do a capital raise and a joint effort with the entire team. Like I'll put the marketing materials, we'll make a webinar, I'll help with the social media. You guys go reach out to your networks, put them on the phone, you have group calls. So for us, capital raising is definitely a, a group effort. So I don't really specialize in either one of those things. I'm more of a generalist, project manager, a hat wearer. You just have to decide, are you going to niche in one? Are you going to niche in the other? Or are you going to be a little bit more in the middle of the road and be okay with not being an expert at either one? That was my next question was, which one do you consider yourself? I think I prefer raising capital, but I feel like I have a partner who's really, really good at underwriting. So I almost want to say, let's let's, let's split the work. I'll focus on the capital side and you go find us a deal. And if you can trust that he can run those numbers and you know at least how to read them, I would say there is no excuse for not being able to underwrite in this industry. You will regret it. You will get yourself into trouble. You must be able to do it. Now, do you have to be the best number cruncher, spreadsheet geek on the planet, the best data researcher? No, but you should be able to do it and you definitely should be able to read it and verify it. There's just no escaping it. It's irresponsible to try. I've had KPs tell me, I don't want to look at any underwriting. I'm like, well, then I don't want to work with you. You know, there are KPs swimming around in the ocean out there. You know, the first couple you find, it's hard, especially when you're leveling up. First KP, you know, is two and a half million dollar net worth. I didn't know anybody with that net worth, right? And now I'm looking for somebody with a 10, 12, 15, $20 million net worth. I don't know anybody like that, but I know lots and lots and lots of people in that two and a half because you keep leveling up, but people will come in and, and they'll say, well, I just want to work on raising capital. Like you can't raise capital for a deal that you don't even know is a good deal, that you have to go out and represent and warrant. And you're not warranting in a legal sense, but you have to go and represent that this is a good deal and people should put their money in it. And you didn't even look at the underwriting. You didn't even vet out what we handed you. Like those are the responsibility of everyone on the team to at least understand the financial underpinnings of this deal. I can absolutely underwrite a deal. I just don't have a desire to underwrite 10 a week. <laughs> That's the difference. Send me the deal once it's been screened. <laughs> right. Good. But also one thing I'm not good at is picking out errors in the underwriting. They bring me a deal. It looks pretty good. And I can, I'm like, pull out the spreadsheet and be like, oh, no, that's wrong. Your assumption there is wrong. You didn't research that or you entered the wrong number in this box. Oh, look, you hard coded over a cell, a formula. That's not me either. I need them to be somewhat competent at underwriting when they send me the deal to screen. If I underwrite it myself, I can get it to a certain point and then I will send it to somebody competent to just clean it up for me and verify my assumptions. When people want to invest with me, maybe not my limited partners, but certainly my general partners, I do require that they go out and vet the underwriting either by doing it themselves or researching it themselves or having their trusted guy come in because I don't need skittish investors who are looking to me to take care of all of this 100% for them. And if anything goes wrong, they're kind of freaking out. Never put more money into a deal than you feel comfortable with. And make sure that if you don't want to look at the numbers, you really don't want to vet it out, that you're okay with the outcome. Because that's the responsibility of the person putting the money in. And I'm not saying I'm not taking any responsibility for that. Of course, we treat investor money better than we treat our own. We can cut back the loose with risky stuff on our own. But with investor money, we feel like this is credibility that our career hinges on how we handle this. So while we do feel a huge duty to our investors, I want investors who are excited to be in there and who are decisive. You can't be either one of those things if you really don't understand what's going on. Now, 
Do they need to be an expert? No, I'm not even an expert. But a basic level of understanding, spend 10, 12 hours educating yourself on how to vet these deals out before you throw money at it. It's just part of the responsibility of anybody who's putting money into a deal. So what is something that you're working on in your business today? Something that that you've struggled with and you are not necessarily struggle with, but something that you're like, all right, this is something I need to fine tune. Well, an attitude that I developed working on my supply chain management process management classes in business school was always be looking for the bottleneck. So you're doing constant analysis of where the system is breaking down. So you might have something backing up because you produce too many of those things and they can't go into the next phase or supplies aren't showing up wherever along that system you're always going to have a bottleneck, always. It's sure. the perfectly balanced synergistic system. I don't know, maybe Toyota has that figured out, but the rest of us really don't. So always identifying the bottleneck. And it's going to be different at any given time. I've been struggling for a long time with the bottleneck of not organizing my contacts. So let's say we get a deal in and it's a 506B and I can only talk to people I've already had this conversation with that I've vetted out their net worth, their financial knowledge and I wrote it all down or, or took a note or something and I didn't know what to do with it. I put it on a spreadsheet and now I can't actually use it. How do I email people to say, okay, I already had this conversation and a 506B, your network is shut down. You can no longer bring new people into that deal. So you better be able to reach out when that clock's ticking. And I didn't have the ability to do that. And so I finally came up with just a very simple solution. And that's the thing. There were a lot of solutions I've looked at but they were too complicated or I knew I wasn't going to do it because I'm lazy or because I don't like doing this thing. So I'm looking for something simple, elegant, affordable. I'm not a big overhead. Like I'm going to run a giant business kind of person. I'm very lean startup mentality. So I finally got everybody into this, into this email marketing database. And now I can tag them and work with them and I can send out emails to say, Hey, we've got a deal. We need an earnest money partner before we even sign the contract. Do they have an NDA or a non-disclosure agreement on file? I'm not sending a deal I don't have under contract to somebody though I don't have a non-disclosure agreement with. So being able to track that they've signed that and send out the emails to people who said, I'm interested in doing this and we've already talked about it and we have an NDA on file. So when I send them a deal, they're ready to go. So getting that organized. And then when the actual capital raise starts and who's interested in being a limited partner? Who said they wanted to be a limited partner? Maybe something outside of my niche. So multifamily, you know, value add multifamily. I did a new construction and people were like, what? I don't know anything about <laughs> So I had them answer questions like, do you want to look at new construction? Do you want to look at commercial assisted living? Do you want to look at industrial warehouse? And if they say no, then I won't ever send them those deals. So managing and organizing that has been a bottleneck that I'm still working on, but I feel like I'm finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. The other one is the underwriting. I am like you. I hate it. I don't want to do it. I know how. I made myself learn how because that's part of the responsibility. But I'm looking for a solution there so that those deals can come in screened and ready. And then I can verify and decide, are we making an offer on this or not? When we're ready to make an offer is where my machine tends to start up. Like, okay, let's go out and kill this. But all the deal screening and all that, I tend to not want to do that. And then after we close the details of day-to-day asset management, also not so great at that, but I'm okay. Anyway, so those are the two bottlenecks, the underwriting, getting the deal screener to just, like you said, churning them in 10 a week, and then just managing my network in a technical way where I can keep track of all these people. 
I heard you say on your Facebook yesterday that you went with MailChimp for the mm-hmm. email database. Is there a particular reason you like MailChimp better than ActiveCampaign? ActiveCampaign is probably better. I know I did a Facebook post a couple of weeks ago saying, hey, I need some help with MailChimp, any MailChimp experts out there. And I had to say, I know there are better solutions than MailChimp. And still I got on the, you, you should use this. You should do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason I like MailChimp, one, I've used it before. It's very different than last time I used this. So I'm pretty lost, which is why I reached out for help. But it is free while you're figuring it out. It is free while you're using it. And it's very easy to export that data over into ActiveCampaign when you are to the point where you've reached the capacity of MailChimp. Now, a lot of people will say, start with the end in mind and just build the business now that you're planning on building in the future. If you're going to do it, just do it right from the get-go. I definitely believe that. But I know what kind of business I'm building. I'm building a business that will allow me to retire early. I'm not building a business that's going to employ 14,000 families. If that was my goal, I would be running this very differently. But because my goal is to spend the next two years doing deals as leanly as possible with as little overhead as possible so that I can retire early. And then I'll have this massive business that I need to shut down or get ready for a sale, which that's not a bad idea, but it's just not what I want to do. And so that's one of the reasons I chose MailChimp. Use the tools that you have. And when you've exhausted the capacity of those tools, you will be in a better position to decide what it is that you're looking for. What features does this not have that maybe a different system does have? Because now that I've tried it, I can make a much better decision from all the choices out there, exactly what I'm looking for, because I've been bumping up into the edges of this. Right now, I haven't bumped up to the edge of anything in MailChimp. So it's working for me. I don't think that that's going to work long-term, but I don't feel qualified to make a decision on what the next more expensive option is going to be. I just don't have enough experience. What advice would you have for somebody that is just getting started in this business? What bucket do you fall into? Do you have no experience and no money? Do you have money and no experience? Do you have experience and no money? (laughs) (laughs) I invest all my money into into deals. And so I, I always feel like I never have any cash, which is. Oh, I was, I was yeah. telling somebody that on the phone yesterday. I was like, I was like, I'm cash poor. That's just the nature of being a realist. So I yep. was calling my, my podcast editor because I wanted to like ramp up, like promoting the podcast and rebuild my website and rebrand this and do this. And I was like, give me prices for all of this stuff. Just uh-huh. like a la carte. Cause I want to pick and choose what I can do now and what I'll do, you know, six months from now. I was like, because I'm poor. He's like, you're poor. You just bought an apartment complex. I was like, yeah, but. With other people's money. Yeah. Yeah. They don't get it. They don't get it. Same thing. I had somebody call me once and he was pitching a a service that was specifically directed at syndicators, you know, like those software platform or web design and those types of things. And they'll come pitch me and they'll either want feedback or they want me to buy it or whatever. And they're like, well, what what feedback can you give me? Like, we're all poor. We don't have any money. So you want to give us a bunch of overhead with high prices for fancy stuff and high subscription monthly fees. Like I need another subscription, like a hole in the head and everything. So running it lean. So if you have cash, but no experience, you can kind of go and pay for some of those things and get your overhead and get the right people in. But if you have experience and no cash, I started out with cash and no experience. And now I'm in the other bucket, but what bucket are you in? If you have money and experience, 
then you are reaching out to beginners who can do a lot of the grunt work for you. If you have experience and no money, you can run the projects, but you're reaching out to other people's money and trying to figure out how to get some of these things done with the least amount of overhead as possible. If you have money, but no experience, like I did, I went and started looking for something I could buy on my own or put my money into someone else's deal to learn experience off of. If you have no money and no experience, then go find somebody who does and don't offer to don't offer to take them out to coffee. Don't offer to pick their brain. <laughs> don't offer to work for free. Now I know Robert Kiyosaki told us to work for free, but don't go and say, I'll do anything you need. Like have a specific value proposition. I am a marketer. I can do your next pitch deck. Like find out as much about what you want to invest in as you can. Identify the skills that you already have that you can then cross train into the new thing. And whatever bucket you fall into, you can either offer that to someone else versus, you know, this way you can pay for it yourself. You can raise money, whatever, but find out what that is. Spend a lot of time learning, figure out where you add value and then go offer that in a professional way. You would never apply for a job with no resume and say, I'll just, I'll just work for free. Cause I really like the auto industry. So let me come work in your factory. No, like get some skills. Put some effort into this and then go get a job, even if it's unpaid. On the subject of experience and money, I just recently heard a quote that I really like. It's the man with uh, money meets a man with experience and the man with experience leaves with the money and the man with the money leaves with the experience. Yes, it's definitely true. It's definitely true. I mean, I almost lost a lot of money on one of my first deals because I it wasn't a real estate deal, but I put it with somebody who... I can't tell if he was trying to steal my money or if he was just incompetent and irresponsible. We ended up getting it back, but there are confidential settlements involved. I mean, it was a long, it was a long process to get it back. And I had cash and I was like, I can go be crazy risky with this because it's not my entire pile and I'm learning. Right. And I learned a lesson on that one. So it's definitely, it's definitely true, but the opposite can also be true. You have some cash and you're too afraid to do anything with it because you're afraid to get burned or maybe you've been burned. If you've been burned, if something's happened, it's like people say, I lost everything in 2008 and they got out of the business. I was like, well, they really did lose everything because you didn't take what you learned and pivot and then go after it again. So you get burned, figure out what you learned from it, put some protections in place. It's like identifying your bottleneck in your business processes. What was the bottleneck in my ability to make money on that deal? How did I get burned? Just put in your next contract, your next letter of intent, or into your internal business processes, whatever it is, protect yourself. You took that baby step, you know, you fell down. Now micro pivot and keep going, learn from it. People who get burned and, and give up or get burned and, and are afraid to do anything, you're just not going to reach your goals that way. Absolutely. So real quick, I want to hop into our radio round to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. I got just three questions. First one is what's your favorite book? Probably... Nonviolent communication. It it taught me a lot about life. It's how to communicate, how to how to hear other people, and how to communicate your needs and feelings in a nonviolent way. There's no yelling. There's no coercion. There's no expecting. If you say the magic words, you can make people do what you want. And at the at the bottom of the book, what you get out of it is I can't control anybody, and I have to be okay with that. And it, it was to my kids, it was to my husband, it's to my business partners, it's to my investors. I can't control anybody. All I can do is communicate in a way that hopefully they will hear me 
and understand what I'm trying to say, understand what's in my heart. And then the rest of it, I can't control and you let it go. So that's, a, that's huge in being able to control stress because stress comes from basically things you can't control. Acceptance so is the answer. Acceptance. So just rather than that defeat, oh, I just, I can't control any of this. And so <laughs> I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to bother because it's too hard. No, identifying what you can control, controlling it, and then trying to influence things you can't control while you recognize that it's only influence. You cannot control it. You're going to put it out there. Some seeds are going to grow. Some seeds are not. It's just like networking. You meet a thousand people or maybe one of them is somebody that you get a benefit back. You give, 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 meet, 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 meet. And very few of them will come back. So what you influence, if you recognize you can, inf- you can try to influence a lot of things, but what you'll end up influencing will only be a few things. So that book will, will teach you how to just be a calmer human who can interact with other humans in a calm way. He's a, like a political negotiator. So tons of great stuff in that book. Awesome. What's your favorite quote? So I think the favorite one I've ever, (laughs) ever seen, and this describes me pretty well. It was this plaque on my friend's wall and it had like a, like a plate and a beautiful tree and this scripty font going around it. And it said, I made you look at this ridiculous quote because I had a nice font and look, now I am showing you a picture of a tree. It was pointless. <laughs> it was pointless. And it just spoke to me on a deep level because a lot of what we are going after in life looks like that. Or we're trying to make it look like that. But then when you dig in and you see what it really says, it's garbage. <laughs> so stop being so concerned about appearances. Stop being so concerned about even your internal appearances, what you want to believe about yourself. Just dig in there and see, I just sucked you in with a pretty picture of a tree. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? I have thousands of hobbies. I think probably my favorite thing to do is to do some hobby, especially if it's a new hobby that I can obsess over. Like watch a thousand YouTube videos on hiking or a thousand (laughs) videos on knitting or playing piano or or whatever it is. I obsess over learning new things. So that's my favorite thing to do. And watching TV. I love watching TV. And you're not going to hear a lot of high, high power people or high success or high achieving people say that they love watching TV. But I've had people ask me before where I got my science degree. And I'm like, PBSU? Like, (laughs) I just like watching astronomy documentaries. I mean, you learn tons of stuff off of TV and we just, oh, it's such a time waster. And it doesn't even have to be a documentary. I just like watching shows and I learn something from everything I look at. So it's very relaxing. At the same time, it's incredibly informative. It's like a fun way to learn. Love watching TV. But right now, I haven't been watching a lot. I go through phases. So love hobbies. Just I love love just getting, sinking my teeth into something. I've not been huge on TV, but I fall asleep watching it. So I like to put something on like those last 30 minutes. If I don't have some kind of noise, I'm like plotting and planning in my head or thinking about work or something. Whereas if I, if I put the TV on, I can like zone out into the show and then like drift off asleep. Mm-hmm. But I've been obsessed with the show Yellowstone lately. Have you watched that one? No, my husband's from Yellowstone. I should probably check that one out. 
oh, dude, I'm watching it a second time. I watched the first three seasons and I was jonesing so much afterward, I started it over again. Excellent show. It's about cowboys in Montana. Oh, yeah, that's I love historical fiction. I reserve my reading, reading audiobooks at night. I'll put in one earbud, fall asleep, earbud falls out, sleep time is on, whatever. Um, it puts me out like that. And it's a good stress reliever. So audiobooks, just, just fiction, like historical fiction, psychological thrillers, you know, any of these things that can take me out of my life and put me in to something else. But I don't want it to be completely mindless fluff. I like it to, I like to learn something from it, which is why I like historical fiction, because after I'm done reading, I'm like, is that really how it happened? It's a little. <laughs> well, how how yeah. can our listeners find out more about you? How can they get in touch with you, invest with you, learn from you? I have a bunch of ways I try and make it easy. It's, it's like, you know, when, back when I had a, a, my photography business and people would say, can I pay you on Venmo or can I pay you on PayPal? I'm like, yes, I don't care how you want to pay me. Yeah. I'll take money in any form. Be easy. Be easy to do business with. (laughs) So I'm easy to find. I'm Emma Powell 28 on Facebook and LinkedIn. I have a website, www.highrise.group. I'm Emma at highrise.group. And I also have a new Instagram that I'm having a lot of fun with. It's Passive Income Adventures, where basically we just photo journal our journey from working stiffs, W2 kind of people. because even though I'm a real estate investor, what I'm doing right now is really, it's my job, but chronicling our job transition over to completely passive income and the ventures that we go on to kind of fuel that dream and fuel that motivation. And also the things we're learning along the way. So that's my new Instagram uh, clubhouse. I'm, I'm there just to holler. I love social media. Just, just grab me over there. Awesome. Well, Emma, thank you so much for joining the show. I learned everything I wanted to, and I'm sure our listeners will too. So can't wait to uh, keep up with you on your investing journey. Yeah, it's a pleasure finally getting to have some significant interaction with you because Frank and Christopher have said a lot of great things about you. So it's a pleasure meeting you. Awesome. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.